You're listening to Soul Talk for Black Folks podcast with your hosts, licensed marriage and family therapists, wives, mothers, and soul sisters, Latoya Chithon and Sarah Harris. Each episode, these ladies bring you empowering and uplifting messages focused on helping you improve relationships with yourself and others while destigmatizing mental health in the Black community. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking mental health treatment. Now grab some coffee or a cup of tea and get comfortable. Let's Soul Talk. This is episode 10, Soul Talk with Dr. Christy Christopher Holloway, Women's Infertility and Maternal Health. Hello and welcome everyone. Today we are talking with Dr. Christy Christopher Holloway. She's the founder and director of New Vision Counseling Center in Georgia. Christy specializes in working with women dealing with infertility, birth trauma, reproductive loss, and issues related to perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So any maternal mental health things, she's the one who you want to come to and talk to for therapy. Dr. Christy is um, also, uh, she's also been featured on um, various social media uh, locations, as well as um, on TV recently. We'll let her tell you a little bit more about that. Welcome, Dr. Christy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Dr. Christy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, So what was already said, I um, own and work at New Vision Counseling Center, which is an outpatient private practice. Um, We specialize in working with a wide wide array of mental health issues, but um, as was said earlier, I specialize in working with women um, and and specifically racial and ethnic minoritized women experiencing infertility, trauma, birth trauma, reproductive loss, and then of course issues related to perinatal mental health, which folks sometimes don't know what that is, and I know we'll kind of jump into it. Um, at some point. So I do that. Um, What else do I do? I'm also an assistant professor, um, a wife and a mom. And as Latoya said, yes, um, on season 13 of the Real Housewives of Atlanta. So you can find me somewhere on the World Wide Web. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you have. Oh, I was just going to say, you have a lot of things going on, Dr. Christie. It sounds like you are, um, you are everywhere to be found online. So it's, <laughs> it's good to know that you have a lot, of, a, a lot of cool things going on right now. Yeah. Um, and a little bit on the personal side, do you have any kids? I do. I have six-year-old twin boys. So, and we homeschool. We've been homeschooling pre-COVID and so still, still in the mix. But yes, I do. I have little, little boys. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Dr. Christie, a lot of people don't know what perinatal mental health is. So can you tell us a little bit about the requirements and how you got certified to be a parent to specialize in perinatal mental health? Yeah, absolutely. So perinatal mental health really looks at and um, like postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, postpartum OCD, things like that, that people don't necessarily know the term perinatal or perinatal mental health sometimes, but they have most definitely heard of depression and then after a baby sometimes or while pregnant, postpartum depression. And so a lot of times they may just say, oh, I was dealing with postpartum right? And they're like, postpartum what? Um, And they're like, postpartum. So yes, perinatal mental health really encompasses um, the mom throughout pregnancy, conception, pregnancy, and after birth, um, when we're looking at it and talking about it that way. And so I did some training. I had all, I had really been working with this population for quite some time, and then did some um, extra training through Postpartum Support International, Mm -hmm. Um, Also trained for, now I'm actually a trainer for PSI as well to help other professionals who are wanting to learn about perinatal mental health. And so I did the training, have the experience um, and did some advanced training as well and then decided to get certified in perinatal mental health. That's great. I'm sure this is something that is a much needed topic for our moms out there. So I am so excited um, that you're here to talk with us more about this. Absolutely. It's definitely. And, you know, there's a lot of stigma behind it. So I'm excited that y'all have even, um, you know, opened this up on your platform for us to talk about, because, of course, the more we talk about it, the more we can normalize it. We can raise people's awareness about it and then they can get the help that they really need. Speaking of stigma, 
it really is a stigma, and I think especially in the Black community. Why do you think it is um, so much of a t- taboo in the Black community? Yeah, about why do you think perinatal mental health issues? Well, you know, it's taboo in the Black community um, about mental health in general. Um, so a lot of taboo in the Black community about infertility in general. And so when you add all of these other compounding factors on it, um, it just makes it that much harder, right? And so I think a lot of the taboo just really comes from our inability to get help. If we kind of want to go all the way back, all the way back to mm-hmm. slavery times and things like that, you know, mental health was never really um, for Black people. Uh, you know, there were no sources and resources and therapists and things like that that were available and out there. And then you also mm-hmm. have that, well, you know, I have to be strong. I have to keep it up. Our ancestors were told to just keep it moving and really did just keep it moving. And so a lot of times in the Black community, um, you know, mental health issues are seen and depression specifically is seen as a sign of weakness. And You know, with everything that's already going on, you don't want to be perceived as weak. And a lot of folks, you know, see it as a weakness when we're talking about mental health and depression. Um, But it hits a little differently for marginalized people and people of color. Um, And then so after, you know, getting pregnant and having a baby and things like that, you know, that stigma just further compounds when we're dealing with infertility, that that stigma further compounds because a lot of times when you are, um, you know, looking at this and maybe have found out that you're experiencing or dealing with infertility and you may go research it, you may not really see folks that look like you. Um, Mm -hmm. And then historically black women and black people have been seen as hyper fertile, the baby makers, right? And you get some of the terminology that's used now in the current year that we're in. Um, And so when you have all of that and you have the societal ideas about reproduction, the societal ideas about mental health, and then you kind of have your own internalized ideas about it. And then you Mm -hmm. add that stigma. It just makes it that much more taboo in our community to really talk about. And so if we're not talking about it, we don't know that those sources and resources are out there for help. So trying to pick apart all of those different layers can be very overwhelming. And sometimes folks just don't know where to begin. Um, how to find a provider that looks like them. And so what typically happens is there's a lot of suffering and silence and just kind of moving back and and dealing with it themselves or maybe talking to, you know, a friend or someone here or there. But that person may not be trained in mental health and really can't can only help you go so far. Yeah, you know, and that's very true, Dr. Christie. Um, I, I personally have experienced infertility as well um, on multiple occasions. And so I knew I know that uh, when I was dealing with it, it was really hard to find somebody to talk to about it. Even my friends, it was hard to talk to them because they didn't understand and they didn't really know what to say. So I did definitely feel like I was I was suffering in silence. Um, with infertility. Absolutely. That's usually what a lot of folks who get to me. And so I've done some research on infertility in Black women, and especially or specifically Black women who identify as religious or spiritual, because then we have to add another cultural or religious context onto be fruitful and multiply, right? And all the things that come with that. Um, And so I've done research on that. And I've also been currently right now doing some research on how Black couples with infertility and a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, like how they cope. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times, a lot the the overwhelming theme in that is, like you said, that suffering and silence and just kind of mm-hmm. dealing with it on their own or, you know, I'm going to just pray about it or I didn't know how to find a provider. And my doctors never even suggested to me that I see a mental health provider, mm-hmm. although I've had, you know, two, three, four, five losses or I'm dealing with, you know, not being able to get pregnant and things like that. And so they really didn't know where to begin um, and what to even look for, right? And then be able to kind of find someone um, to be able to work with them. And to piggyback off of that, can you share some of the things that you've heard women say have been um, challenges when they have gone out and tried to seek services? What kinds of things do they encounter? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of times it's maybe, you know, I cannot, or they were struggling with finding a provider that looked like them. So Mm -hmm. if they were a black woman trying to find a provider that identified as, uh, you know, black African-American or African descent, um, they may have struggled with finding a provider that actually knew about infertility or actually knew Mm -hmm. about 
perinatal mental health. And so if that provider didn't know, um, and so maybe the provider, like many of us therapists, we can work with depression, we can work with anxiety, right? Like that's that general thing. But depression with, you know, dealing with loss or dealing with infertility or anxiety or trauma, dealing with that is a, it's a whole different ball game. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, these women are a lot of times feeling like, you know, it's almost re-traumatizing because they have to almost educate their provider on what it means when we say follicle stimulating hormone and Mm -hmm. your LH levels didn't do this. And my doctor said, I need IVF with ICSI and, you know, all the terminology that's coming um, or I'm on this medicine and that medicine. And so the provider may not have had that understanding and information and really couldn't um, take them further and where they needed to be. And so it almost mm-hmm. felt re-traumatizing or feeling like I'm having to tell, I'm having to experience over and over what my doctor is telling me. And really what I want to do is just kind of process it and talk it out without having to explain um, mm-hmm. what it really means. So finding a provider that looks like them, finding a provider that has an understanding of, you know, that specific Um, area. So infertility or perinatal mental health, you know, what does postpartum OCD look like? Um, And it's not psychosis, right? And so being afraid to really tell their provider what they're thinking or what they're feeling, not knowing how that provider is going to receive it, and then what the next steps would be, because it's very scary to go and tell someone, hey, I'm thinking about, I'm having these really, really um, embarrassing thoughts about what if, you know, I do this to my baby? What if this happens? And so if I'm already feeling embarrassed, isolated, stigmatized, do I really want to go and tell this provider that I was just thinking about this type of harm or these things happening? And then how will they move forward? And unfortunately, and historically, we've seen a lot of black and brown families torn apart and ripped apart. And so you know, it's very difficult sometimes to make that decision and say, how much do I want to tell my provider? And then what is that going to look like for me? Or or are they going to say, hey, nope, I'm sending you to the hospital. I'm going to now, depending on where you are, 1013, you Baker's act, you like, I'm going to send you to the hospital. And then now what, who's going to take care of my children over here? I'm nursing, I'm Mm -hmm. breastfeeding, I'm doing this. And so it's just, you know what, I'll just keep it to myself or I'll only share bits and pieces and then I'll deal with the rest on my own. And sometimes that works out. And then, but a lot of times that doesn't work out because what happens is they now have this untreated issue. And so now baby is three, four, five, eight years old. And now what is looking like major depressive disorder was really an untreated uh, perinatal depression or postpartum depression. That's heavy. That's yeah. heavy to see what happens, what can happen long-term if this remains untreated. I can imagine it does look like something else after a while. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll have couples sometimes come to me or a mom come to me and I'll say, well, you know, when did you notice this change and this and that? And they may say, well, oh, it was, you know, eight years ago. Well, what happened eight years ago? That's when our last child was born. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. And so you've been kind of experiencing this and dealing with this for eight years, but you know, now you're here and it's looking like marital discord or communication, parenting, Mm -hmm differences, um, again, major depression or anxiety issues and other interpersonal relationships. And so it can be this trickle down and this domino effect and can really start impacting us in so many different areas, not just if it's infertility or not just, you know, I had a new baby in this postpartum time. You've spoken a lot about how isolating that feeling can be, where you feel like you cannot speak to your provider about it or your provider may not understand what you're going through. And so the woman is left feeling lonely, isolated, feeling like a failure. And that can have incredible impacts on one's, impacts on one's mental health. Right. Um, share a little bit more about the impacts on one's uh, mental health. So the impact of infertility on mental health? I'm feeling lonely, feeling like a failure, feeling okay. isolated and trying to handle this all by yourself. Yeah, because, you know, again, it puts them in that mindset of maybe I'm the only one that's experiencing this or there's no one that I have found that I can relate to. Um, So, you know, a a personal story, I remember when we were dealing with infertility. And so I'm looking for support. I'm trying to find out, like, what what does this look like? And I finally found a Facebook um, 
group and the moms in there were um, and the ladies in there were very helpful and phenomenal. But guess what? I literally was the only black person in that group. And mm-hmm. so and this was a group of maybe about 50 of us. Um, and then I think a couple of years later, there was like one or two more that kind of found their way to that group. And so, again, it can be isolating. It can feel lonely. It can feel like, well, who do I really tell? And am I going to be able to connect? And, you know, do they understand? Because there's going to be differences. We know about structural and institutional racism and all of the health disparities and things like that. So, yeah, we're both dealing with infertility, but my journey looks a whole lot different based on the color of my skin or based on, you know, some of the, the, the things that I was told, you know, during that, that journey, um, or I'll hear moms say, you know, well, my doctor just told me to get on birth control. Oh, okay. So further perpetuating that inability to, you know, start family planning and having children. And so it, it can look a lot differently. And if I'm coming to you and saying, hey, I'm really ready to start family planning um, and I've been struggling with this or we haven't kind of conceived yet, I'm not being offered extra services or I'm not being offered that extra help by a specialist. I'm being told to get on birth control and just wait. Um, and that's not okay. And so that loneliness, that isolation, all of that can really take its toll. Again, it can make someone kind of really start having bouts of depression. Um, mm-hmm. Anxiety can happen, especially just, you know, depending if you're going back and forth to appointments or, you know, like, is it this time that I'm going to, you know, be with my partner and maybe this month we'll be pregnant and then their period comes and then the next month, maybe this month will be and then their period comes. Right. And so this is why I say that infertility is very traumatic Mm -hmm. because it's that loss literally every single month over and over and over again. Um, And when we look at and how we define and identify what trauma is and you kind of compare the symptoms of trauma and the reactions that people have. And then we're looking at it through an infertility infertility or reproductive lens. You can see that there's that avoidance, there's that anxiety, there's that um, fearfulness, there's those thoughts going over and over and things like that. Um, And then a lot of times with infertility, the person isn't really able to, if, if they're actively trying, right, they're maybe through now they're with a specialist and doing all of these treatments and things like that, that period starts, guess what? You can cry for that day, but you also have to be calling your doctor. And now you have to go in for the next appointment on day three. And so it's really no time to kind of grieve. It's no time to really uh, process the impact of what you had said earlier, sometimes feeling like a failure and things like that, because you're in that hustle go, 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 go. Um, And so what I typically see is during that time, some depression, um, but I also see it's almost kind of like this autopilot because they are in the process and it's that go piece. Um, And then I'm seeing that depression, that anxiety, we're having like those residual effects once maybe they finally conceive or they make a decision to, you know, stop or maybe to adopt or things like that, like whatever that journey looks like, you still have all of that residual unresolved stuff that was really never able to kind of be unpacked um, and processed if they're not in therapy already. And I was thinking, and sometimes some of these uh, feelings could show up as anger. So there's a depression, maybe anxiety, but the anger, which can also impact the relationships to the unexplained or unexpected anger and irritability. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what I usually tell my clients, um, which was what was told to me by my therapist at the time, you know, infertility happens to the couple. But depending on, so here's the thing. Um, when folks are diagnosed with infertility, or maybe there's maybe there's no diagnosis yet, and there's no baby, uh, society is typically still looking at the woman. And so, um, if you know someone that's dealt with infertility, or you yourself have dealt with it, um, and there are no babies yet, you know, people are looking like, when y'all gonna have some babies? When you gonna get that man some babies? Mm-hmm. Or what y'all waiting for? And they're looking directly at the woman. <laughs> And so she may be the diagnosed person, but her partner, her spouse, her male partner may also be the diagnosed person. And so they're not looking at him. And so typically what happens is the the burden still falls on the woman. A lot of times, you know, that bearing of it is still really on her. And not to say that obviously men don't, but again, thinking from a societal way from your family, when they're saying, what y'all 
for. They looking dead at her and things like that. And she's probably like, no, you tell me what we waiting for, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But those are the things that happen. And so um, a lot of times, though, that anger is there. And it's Mm -hmm. really resentment. And it's anger towards this diagnosis. It's anger and resentment towards my body not doing what I felt and was told, right? Like many of us as children were told, you have sex, you're going to get pregnant. It's as simple as that, right? But it's not as simple as that. And so now I'm resentful at my body not doing what I was told that it's supposed to naturally do. I'm resentful at my, um, you know, expectations and what I thought my life would look like. I thought I'd have one or two or three children by now and I have none, or maybe I'm dealing with secondary infertility. Um, And then I'm sometimes resentful at my partner, Um, If I'm the one having to get all the injections and the monitoring and the appointments and the calls and things like that. And so I may be resentful at my partner, angry at my partner. And so what I help them understand is one, anger is a secondary emotion. It's very real. It's definitely very real. We will not minimize it and say, you're not angry. You're really just hurt, (laughs) you know? It yes. is definitely an emotion, but oftentimes it's a secondary emotion. And it's really, I'm hurt, I'm sad, I'm disappointed, I'm let down. Um, and now because of all of that, I'm pissed off. I'm mm-hmm. angry, mad at the world. I'm mad at my body. I'm mad at my doctors. I'm mad at my parents. I'm mad at birth control. I'm, I'm mad at all of these things that may, um, you know, kind of be, be happening. And so helping them to understand, like, you know what, let's process that anger and let's really work through that. But let's also work through the hurt, the disappointment, the resentment, um, the, you know, and the irritability so that one, you can not feel so consumed and overwhelmed by it, but that you and your partner, if you're in a partnered relationship, can also learn how to turn in towards one another versus allow, you know, letting this kind of separate you and pull you apart. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. That's why it's so important to have trained specialists that that, that are part of your treatment team. Absolutely. Absolutely. Indeed, because again, you may not know. And a lot of a lot of times, especially if this isn't an area you work in, you know, if there are any clinicians listening, um, just thinking about what does my intake paperwork say? And do I ask them about fertility, about losses, um, family planning, you know, and things like that? And if it, you know, most intake paperwork I've seen, it may say, you know, are you married? Any divorces? Do you have children? And that's really it. Sometimes they don't even ask that. And so then, you know, is it on your intake paperwork? But then what are you doing with it once you find out the information? Because what we may not know is she may have had two or three losses. They may have been trying to conceive for five years now. um, And we don't have that information to see how it could really be impacting other areas. And this is something we've got to work or if she's pregnant now, my gosh, what's all this anxiety about or what is happening? Not realizing that there were five losses prior to that. And so there's a lot of unresolved grief, some probably some type of PTSD or some type of trauma or acute stress and so many things that are going on with that. So to answer your question, that is why it's important to have folks that are trained because they, you know, you'll know what to be listening for. It's no different than if I said, man, my chest is hurting. Well, I could go to my primary doctor and he can run types of tests. He can get blood work. But what I could also do is go to a cardiologist who's going to know certain things to listen for, who's going to ask certain questions, who's going to know that the heart, um, uh, you know, chest hurting could be linked to something else. And so these right. people know what blood work and labs and things like that to request. So it's not that my uh, PCP doesn't know anything and it's not good. It's just that they are not a specialist and trained in cardiology. And so it's the same thing when we're talking about therapy. Your therapist may be great and the best thing since sliced bread, but if they, if you're dealing with something specific and they're just not trained in it or don't know, it's okay to find one that does know and does have that training. Or if you're you know, a provider and in practice, it's okay. You may want to consider bringing on other therapists that have specialty areas and trainings in it so you can best serve 
the folks that you're working with um, and everybody can benefit. Yes. And for therapists who do not specialize in this, surround yourself with those who are specializing in this or at least have them as part of your network. So if you need to refer a client to them, you can refer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you just, you know, we never know what may walk in our door. And, and so we know people come and say, I'm, I want to work, you know, improve communication with my spouse, or I'm coming to, you know, clients will say, I'm, I just want to come work on life, right? Life issues. You're like, oh, this is going to be easy. And then you walk in and it's like, oh, no, loss, infertility, um, you know, maybe something <laughs> Uh, job stuff, trauma, all the things. And so it's important to have like folks we can refer to because we just never know what's going to walk in front of us. And realizing that the communication issue is stemming again because I'm resentful for you not being there for me or showing up for me five years ago when we were dealing with the loss. Mm-hmm. Yes. Quick side note here. Yesterday I did uh, emotionally focused therapy training, EFT training, and we were talking about attachment um, injuries that occur in a marriage. And sometimes, yeah, that example that you shared is a perfect example of what can occur. Maybe it occurred 30 years ago, five years ago, but it's still impacting the relationship now. So understanding what's really happening can be so, so effective. Yeah. And what's happening is what couples or clients are doing that dance, right? And they have those, those, those injuries, um, attachment injuries. And you think about it, we're talking about family planning, we're talking about fertility. For many people, the attachment to that unborn child happens before conception. And you're like, well, how? It's not even here because you've thought about it. You think about it, you wanted to have children growing up. You probably, um, you probably were like, oh, I'm going to name my children this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this and we'll get our nails done or I'll be my son and we'll go play football and baseball. And then when you get pregnant or you kind of think you may be, what do they do? You may kind of poke your belly out a little. If you, you know, you may put a, a pillow there and see how your belly's going to look pregnant, right? So that attachment mm-hmm. happens well before conception a lot of times, and it happens well before birth a lot of times if you're you know, actively planning and knowing that you want to have a family. And so when it doesn't happen that way, and it doesn't happen, you lay down and wake up pregnant, um, or you continue to have losses and things like that, guess what? We got some attachment stuff going on. Atta- and, and our own attachment things, you know, a loss is the ultimate break of an attachment, right? Um, a physical attachment. Some folks still hold on to the maintaining of bonds during the loss, but it's the ultimate breaking of a physical attachment. And so if I'm dealing with that and then it's something going on with my partner and they didn't grieve the way I grieved, right? They the way I was, they didn't, they don't go to the grave site every year on the baby's birthday and stuff like that. I am now having an attachment injury with my partner too. And yeah. this, because it's attachment based, it's deep, it's deep. Right. Because you need your partner to be there for you. But sometimes your partner is grieving in their own way that's different than yours. Yeah. Right. But it still feels like a betrayal, like an abandonment or rejection. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, ah. that's crucial to help them understand is they may just grieve differently. You were upset that they went back to work two days later and maybe that's how they were coping because it was too hard to be in the house. But you felt neglected. You felt abandoned. You felt they didn't care, you know, or whatever it may have been. Um, and they were like, I just, I don't know how to help her. or I didn't know what to do. Or I needed some type of normalcy. Um, but nobody's really communicating that. And then guess what? Those resentments are building and they may not even be aware. You know, I feel like, oh gosh, whatever. Now they're in our office for couples therapy and it comes out like, well, you were never, you aren't there for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's going like, well, tell me instances when they weren't, you felt like your partner wasn't there. We lost the baby and they went to work the next day. Oh, here we go. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. You've yes. never been able to work through that. And here we are five years later. And that's mm-hmm. what's going on. Yeah. And, you know, I know you just mentioned trauma and that's actually what I want to shift into. So, Dr. Christie, one of your specialties is working for women with women who have experienced birth trauma. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about what birth trauma is and, and maybe can you share some examples of, of what it might look like? Yeah, yeah. So the first thing is trauma is in the eye of the beholder, right? And so just like we would say beauty is in the eye of the beholder and you'd be looking at people like, oh, okay, um, you know what, <laughs> you good. <laughs> <laughs> because we all have how we see things, right? 
But it's the same thing when we're talking about trauma. Trauma is in the eye of the beholder. And what that really means is it's not on me to tell the person that their experience was traumatic or not traumatic. It's on them to identify what that looks like for them. So, you know, I can have a car accident and not have any issues, no trauma at all. And just saying, oh, I'm so thankful to be alive, you know, things like that. Whereas Mm -hmm. someone could have a quick um, fender bender and it was just a little clip on their car and they're freaking Mm -hmm. out and they're traumatized, right? And so big T's, little T's, big trauma, little trauma, it's really in the eye of the beholder. That's the first thing to know, okay? So what what I'm saying, the reason why I want to kind of point that out is because every birth trauma experience doesn't lead to a PTSD diagnosis, okay? They may have different ways of coping or resiliency or kind of how they... um, processed it, you know, what those supports look like and things like that. So every experience of birth trauma does not lead to a PTSD diagnosis. But um, so birth trauma can really look like any type of event that either happens during labor or um, happens during the birth process where maybe there was either an actual or, or threatened um, or serious threatened injury or death, maybe to the mom or to the baby. It can also look like mom being stripped of her dignity. Um, it can look like mom feeling or the birthing person feeling very fearful and afraid, helpless. Maybe they feel like they don't have any control um, or there was a loss of control. There is some type of horror that has happened. Um, and so a lot of times what I help moms understand is birth trauma for you can really look like a change in your birth plan. You thought you were going to have an unassisted, unmedicated home birth, water birth, right? And mm-hmm. Your partner was going to be there and your other children and just all the people you love. And it was going to be this most intimate and amazing experience. And guess what? You found out your blood pressure was high preeclampsia, and now you're in the hospital on bed rest and you have to have an emergency C-section. And guess what? It's a pandemic. It's COVID and none of those people can be in the hospital with you. Oh, right. Yes. Um, yes. Maybe only your partner, but not your mom, not your children. You haven't seen your children for now two mm-hmm. weeks or something like that mm-hmm. other than maybe mm-hmm. uh, FaceTime or um, you know, some other t- Zoom or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that can look like birth trauma. It can look like um, having severe tears and lacerations as you are pushing your baby out. It can look like, which I have heard, you know, stories from parents um, saying, and you know, your doctor saying, you just push, you better push or I'm cutting this baby out of you. Mm-hmm. Oh boy. That loss of control. Maybe you got to because now the baby is getting ready to be in distress and you're getting ready to be in distress as well. But the way it's said and that loss of control, that fear, that horror that may come, maybe your heart stopped, right? We, you know, maybe that was it and you had to be brought back. Maybe you had a lot of loss of blood. Um, and now you are having to go to ICU and get blood transfusions and you only saw a glimpse of your baby as they rolled you out. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're um, having a C-section or a regular birth and they couldn't stop the bleeding. And now you have a hysterectomy as well. And now, you know, you will never have any more children, but I also got to figure out how to take care of this one right here. Maybe the baby came so early and it's in NICU. Um, I guess I should have probably said trigger warning for folks that are listening here. So here's your trigger warning, but yes, <laughs> yeah, folks maybe actually have experienced this and it may bring up their own yeah. stuff. Right. Um, yes. But maybe your baby is in NICU and it was born 24, 25 weeks, um, which depending on where you are, viability, most, most doctors and hospitals will say 24 weeks. And if it's before that, mm-hmm. you're not going to do much intervening. And so you're, completely afraid and you hit 24 weeks Mm -hmm. and you think you're out of the, you know, the, the cautionary time now, bam, Mm -hmm. water breaks, something is happening. Your baby is born at 25 weeks in the NICU and your breast milk has not come in yet. And you cannot Mm -hmm. lactate to feed them. What you want it to do is to give them breast milk. You also can't really see them um, and barely touch them. And now you've been discharged from the hospital because you're fine, right? Like, well, you're physically, Mm -hmm. you're, you're in that part, maybe not mentally, emotionally fine, but you're fine Mm -hmm. to be discharged. But now your baby is left in the hospital with you or without you. Without you. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. All of that can look like birth trauma. 
Um, and those are some examples of it. Um, and sometimes it can be, again, like I said, you thought you were going to have this type of birth and plan and it just didn't work out that way. You thought, um, you know, it was going to be your OB that you had been seeing your whole pregnancy delivering. And now it's someone you have no idea who it is and you already have some type of your own past trauma. Yeah, your doctor knew about that. So you were okay with them touching you, you were okay with them checking you, you were okay with them monitoring you, you felt safest because you thought they were going to deliver your baby. And for whatever reason, they are not. And guess what, someone else is touching you, checking you. And and if you've had children, you know how that goes with hands mm-hmm. and everything all in your hoo-ha. I remember telling the mm-hmm. doctor, you owe me lunch after this because <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> going out later because your whole (laughs) (laughs) yes right and so but you know again like that stripping of dignity that can sometimes feel like that for a lot of birthing people um and so again all of that can really look like birth trauma or feel like birth trauma and so me as a provider I have to take that and hear that story but a lot of times people don't even identify it I know I said earlier like Mm -hmm. it's in the eye of the beholder and it's not on me to tell you it's traumatic or not but a lot of times folks don't even recognize that it was a traumatic experience they're just talking about it they're talking about how they dissociated they disconnected how they may have um have this anxiety and this fear how they avoid hospitals and so clinicians we're hearing trauma 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 right yes have to kind of raise their awareness or bring that insight into them like you know that was a traumatic experience for you and this is how you have responded and dealt with that um, you know, I'm trauma informed. And so I'd like to kind of see things as what, what happened to you versus what's wrong with you. And so helping them understand that, you know what, you're, you're, you're having trauma responses. So whereas people see you popping off, yelling, you know, not wanting anyone to touch the baby or, you know, those things, what it really is, it's mm-hmm. a trauma response. And this is how it's manifesting in you. Yeah. And, you know, as you're talking about the different, uh, the different experiences that the moms might be having, what I'm hearing is that this requires vulnerability. They're in a very vulnerable space. Absolutely. Very, very, you know, your legs are up and open. (laughs) Um, your, your people are in and out. What if you are in a training hospital and it's your doctor, it's the nurse, it's a, a, um, a resident, you know, an interning, mm-hmm. things like that. And so it's a lot of vulnerability. And then even after that, you know, again, what does that look like? What does that feel like? And how do I yeah. put words to what my experience was? Is it okay for me to put words to that? Am I tripping? Is And maybe I'm normalizing because mm. like, well, this is what all moms go through. Everybody got to go through this to have a baby. Mm. Things like mm-hmm. that, not realizing and knowing that they could have advocated for themselves and say, you know what, I really don't want to be checked unless there's some type of distress. You know what? Yeah. I appreciate yeah. that you're a training facility, but I just want my doctor in here and this nurse. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't want all everybody looking at me. Um, um, you know, this is what I wanted for my birth plan, and this is what I would prefer to stick to and not having people come and ask me, you sure you don't want that um epidural? Yeah, want that because I'm already Mm-hmm. A lot of pressure. And so all of that vulnerability, um, you know, really being there. It's so important to be aware of your rights and yeah. to know that it's okay to make your voice heard. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that comes with a lot of things that comes with, you know, I tell folks, you know, you don't always buy the first house you see, you don't always buy the first car that you see, you may love it, but mm-hmm. it may not be the one for you. You may be like, Oh, that house is great. I can see my, you know, us cooking here and I can see this, but it's just something about it that um, is not the seller for me, right? It's not, it's not it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to put a, an offer on it. And so you may have mm-hmm. a doctor or find a doctor or a therapist and you say, you know what, they sound good. They sound great, but it's just something. Let me look for one who I feel like um, is going to listen to me, is going to Mm-hmm. share collaboration and give me choice versus telling me what I'm going to do and then not offering me any explanation as to why I need to do that. Um, who, mm-hmm. who may be 
um, open to me having my doula there or midwife or open to me laboring at home as long as I can take it and then get to the hospital. Um, maybe having one who's open to understanding the trauma that I've already experienced and understanding that they need to ask me before they touch me. Um, and things like that, or having a therapist that is, I know is going to advocate or is willing to, um, you know, collaborate with my medical provider, as long as I have like a release of information, you know, and things like that. So yes. Knowing yep. that and, and knowing the choices and knowing how to use the voice um, and being supported that knowing that if you use your voice, that you're going to be supported mm-hmm. and not dismissed or invalidated. Right, right. Not that it wouldn't happen, right? Yeah. Because it could still happen even most after you use it, your voice. Right. Yeah. It can most definitely still happen. You give some really, really great examples of what birth trauma looks like. And then I'm thinking, okay, so then what happens when you add race to this? Uh, it's a whole other level of trauma. So do you feel like this happens more with white people or black people when, when it comes to trauma, birth trauma? So I don't have the actual statistics and, you know, I, okay. I don't need mm-hmm. nobody coming for me saying where's <laughs> so I don't have yes. the numbers y'all. I don't have yes. the actual numbers, but what I do have <laughs> are the facts that we have racial disparities in our healthcare and our medical system. Right. We know that. Yes. We know mm-hmm. institutional racism. We know that black moms die at three to four times. Mm-hmm. Um, the rate than white moms. We know black moms experience infertility almost one and a half to two times more likely than white moms or white um, couples and partners. Um, But they are two black, black women are almost two times less likely to seek help. This we know that black babies die at greater rates than white babies. And and I'm not just saying black, we know that babies of color. Yeah. Right. We know that women of color die at higher rates. So when I'm talking about black women, Hispanic women, Asian American Pacific Islander women, all of these women die at higher rates than their counterparts. Now, here's the kicker when I go back to black women. So black women, again, like I said, dying almost four times more likely to die in childbirth or around the childbirthing time than white women. Um, these numbers are just as high as they were in the 60s, the 50s, the 40s, the 30s. This is 2021. Wow. So we've got clearly better ultrasounds, ways to detect, yeah. monitoring, more you know, medical advances and things like that. So then we have to ask ourselves if we mm-hmm. have better ways to detect we have great medical advances. We can save babies that are born at 23, uh, you know, weeks, right? 23, 24 mm-hmm. weeks. We can do, you know, we've seen the things that we can do with medicine. We've seen all of this. Then tell me why are black moms and black babies still dying at the rates they were dying at 50 and 60 plus years ago? Mm-hmm. Yes. Then what is your answer? If we, you know, let's do our Mm -hmm. deduction and you know all of those things. Then what are we left with if we eliminate we because we have to? um, We have accounted for um, education because Mm -hmm. we more education that a person typically has. Maybe they'll have um, you know a career or a job. They'll have insurance, right? So Mm -hmm. for that. Right. We've accounted for education. We've accounted for income. We've accounted for insurance. We've accounted for, you know, all of the things that would be those factors. We've accounted for social um, and health determinants. We've accounted for high blood pressure, you know, all of the things. Then why is it still happening at such higher rates? Right. It is a national crisis. It's not just in one little town where they don't have a doctor and have outdated ultrasound machines and things Mm -hmm. like that. No, it is not. Um, And so unfortunately, people of color, moms of color, women of color do die at higher rates than their counterparts. Um, Babies of color Mm -hmm. are dying at higher rates than than their counterparts. And so Yes. Now we have to look at then what is the issue? And so we have to add race into that. There are studies. And again, yeah. these aren't studies from 30 years ago. There are studies from just a few years ago where we have mm-hmm. 
providers, and I'm not just saying um, medical providers, mental health okay. as well. Mm-hmm. We have providers who still have a thought process that um, Black people have higher pain tolerances, so therefore they're not going mm-hmm. to get certain medications or types of medications. We have providers that still have that mindset that Black folks are hyper-fertile, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, no, I'm, I'm like, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to offer you birth control versus this. We have mm-hmm. providers who still think again, that same mindset that unfortunately people of color, black people aren't full people, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. The the brain and capacity for emotional issues and mental health issues. So when I said earlier, mental health was never considered for black people and people of color Mm -hmm. because they were never considered a full person. They were never to have emotional regulation and and emotions and things like that. And so you still have providers who have these thought processes. And even if they don't realize, like they're not just blatant with it, because one Mm -hmm. of the things is um, implicit bias, right? Like I Mm -hmm. I just have this bias. And guess what? Mm -hmm. All of us have a bias. We all have a bias Mm -hmm. because of our worldview, our upbringing, how we were raised, our religion. You know, we all have that. Some people may say, hey, um, I don't believe in abortion. Some people may say I'm pro-choice, right? We all have that bias. What we Mm -hmm. To check, though, is how is that bias showing up in the work that I do? How is that bias showing up in how I listen to the mom when she's telling me I don't feel right? How does that bias show up when she's saying I didn't really I didn't feel as many kicks with this baby? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, How does this bias show up when they come in and say, look, I already know people die in childbirth. It's a risk. I also know that black women are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth. And I'm scared as hell to come in here and deliver this child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, are you trying to offer reassurance? Are you talking right. or are you dismissing that? Right. And so race does play a factor and some people will say it doesn't. It does. Mm-hmm. And so we have to do the work um, in our systems and our organizations and things like that to try to dismantle that, to advocate for that. I'm a, I'm a counselor. I'm a counselor educator. And one of the things I tell my students is I'm teaching you theories from people that don't look like half the people you're going to mm-hmm. That's right. Mm. That's right. Right. Depending yes. on where you are yeah. and where mm-hmm. and who you work with. Now, maybe they may, but guess what? Even if you are, if I'm teaching you that and all these people look like you, I'm still doing you a disservice. You never know when you may move and go to a more um, diversely populated area. And so you think about it. Our medical model is still a very old and antiquated model. If folks are being taught and trained on models and theories and all the things that are still based in some of those biases and some of that racism and things like that, then it's going to play a role. And you know, what I'm hearing in that is two, it's two parts. It's the education and it's the empowerment. Mm-hmm. And that actually leads me to the next question. So Regarding the postpartum depression symptoms, you know, I've worked with a lot of moms who have postpartum depression, but many of them are completely unaware that postpartum depression is even a thing. You know, they're looking at it like, hey, this is because I've just I've just been extra tired lately. That's why I've been acting like this or that's why I've been more irritable, for example, Um, or it's just because I'm a new mom. I haven't gotten much sleep, things like that. And so they don't really recognize that they what they're experiencing may actually be symptoms of postpartum depression. So can you talk a little bit about how you explain postpartum depression to somebody who's not familiar with the term? So um, thinking of my caseload here, everybody, with the exception of of (laughs) I have have one man on my caseload and I always joke with him be like, who sent you? How did you get here? But so everybody on my caseload, though, was either pregnant, a new mom, um, wanting to be a mom um, or, you know, I've been working with them and I've seen them, their babies now or two and three and four. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I remember you in your mama's belly. But 
um, <laughs> one of the things that I really, really try to do is I try, if they come to me pregnant or I know they're wanting to get pregnant and they, and they are literally, literally actively um, in that, in that trying to conceive process, I start then talking to them about perinatal mental health. I'm already, especially if I already know you have a risk factor, prior depression, prior, you know, or prior mental health diagnosis. So anxiety, depression, OCD, things like that. Um, prior losses, infertility, um, you know, all of those things that could um, be a potential risk factor anyway. If you already have that, I'm already talking to you about it. I'm, I'm really educating you beforehand. But let's just say you didn't get to me and all of that and you came to me and you eight months pregnant because I'll get those. And they're like, I'm, I'm here, here, I'm pregnant, I'm delivering this baby in four weeks and I'm dealing with, you know, whatever this may be. I'll start then saying, hey, not to scare you, but I want to educate you. I want to inform you because this, you know, I don't want you getting out of here, having this baby. And like you said, not knowing, and they think they're losing their minds. Um, and so I talk about and educate them on the difference between the baby blues, which many of us, you know, have or will experience, but then also start talking to them about a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. And I'm specific to say that and not just say maternal mental health, because we also mm -hmm. know that um, these issues can impact the male, the dad too. So this is how we know this isn't just hormonal. So you'll have people say, oh, she's just hormonal. She just had a baby. Her hormones are all over the place. And the mom is looking at you like I'm about to chop your head off because it's not just my <laughs> hormones, right? Exactly. Right? Um, or don't dismiss me like that. And so, um, but yeah, so I'll educate them like, hey, you, you know, you're already here working on your anxiety or your depression or your stress. Let's talk about what your support system looks like now and what that support system can look like post baby. Because again, here are some of the risk factors. Here are some of the categories. And this is the difference between postpartum blues. I'm sorry, the baby mm -hmm. blues, which is about up to about two to four weeks after birth. Those first two weeks, if it's leading to after that and they're coming and telling me, I just, you know, I'm not connecting with the baby. I'm just not doing anything or I'm tired or my anxiety is, you know, super high and things like that. Mm -hmm. And we're three, four, five, six weeks in. Mm -hmm. That's not the baby mm -hmm. blues anymore, because even mm -hmm. then your hormones, they may not have been completely regulated, but they are they are coasting like they're downgrading. They're not like really all over the place like that. Mm -hmm. nursing. And then I still talk, I talk to them about what it looks like with breastfeeding um, and, and the milk let down and, and prolactin and all of that and how that can sometimes feel. So I really start educating them as, as early as possible, right? If I can, yeah. if they've come to me after the fact and they're like, like you said, I was just so tired, you know, so they're, they're writing it off themselves because one, they don't know, two, maybe the folks mm -hmm. around them don't know. Um, even in my experience, after my boys, my boys were five and a half, my twins were five and a half months before I realized, I was like, oh my gosh, this is postpartum depression and anxiety. And here I am mm -hmm. in the field. But you know what was going on? I was getting my doctorate. I had twins. So yes, I'm going to be exhausted and tired. <laughs> I was also, you know, in private practice still at that time. And I had two locations. So I was huh. all of the things I was, I, you know, I got pictures of me, got a, holding a baby, got the pump and then got my computer like right next to me. Trying oh, to in a, you know, with oh, one wow. hand. Yes. And so it yeah. can look like you're just tired. You got a lot going on. Mm -hmm. In reality, what it was, was postpartum depression. It was postpartum mm -hmm. um, anxiety that was happening. I was already a risk factor because of infertility. Right. And we, mm -hmm. For three years. And so the depression and the anxiety and the trauma that came from that, I was already in a, in a risk category. Yeah. So again, like I said, I was educated, a career, you know, living my best life, married, all of the <laughs> right. things, right. A good support system. And it still hit me. So this is how we say it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't care about you, mm -hmm. white, black, Hispanic, mm -hmm. Asian, you know, things like that. It doesn't care if you make no money at all, or if you are a billionaire and make a billion dollars an hour, it does mm -hmm. not yeah. care about any of that. It doesn't care if your, your supports, if you have 12 people in your house supporting you, or if you have no people, right. perinatal mood and anxiety disorders do not discriminate. And so 
I um, really try to start educating them about that as early as possible. Or if they come to me after the baby's already born again, hey, like, let me tell me what's going on. And then let's kind of figure out what this is and what it looks like. Because what I don't want it to happen is you are untreated two years from now, three years from now, four years from now you know, you've been suffering for this for that long. Um, and this can, and so that's another thing too. Like people think, I mean, the baby's 10 months. How is she still dealing with postpartum depression? Guess what? It can manifest up to two years. And so I, so some literature will say one year, some says two, I lean towards two because it's going to manifest when it does, but it can also look very differently for people of color. And so um, I'm, I, I lean towards more of that two years because it's a lot going on. Um, and then what about those who have a baby and then get, you know, 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So they have a baby and then bam, six week checkup. Again, or that <laughs> You're pregnant again. Or six months pregnant again. Now you got two under two and mm. you really couldn't process what was going on because now you're pregnant again. And so here it was, it was pushed to the back burner. People are, you know, like dismissing it. You got a lot going on. And now here's baby number two. And here we are at that two years. Man, you know, and this is such good information because everything you're telling us now, just bringing the awareness to um, how long this could be lasting or what it might look like. These are all good things that people do need to be more aware of. So where can they get resources, both the moms, dads, families in general, if they're experiencing postpartum depression, what kinds of resources can you provide? Yes, absolutely. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is get into therapy. So, you know, people, y'all, we're all therapists. So people say, you work with crazy people. No. Mm-hmm. So I tell folks, I work with everyday people with everyday problems, honey. And that's you and me at any given time. So yes. that's what I work with. Because to me, crazy means I can't help you. There is literally nothing I can do. Or there's nothing no one can do. Because maybe I can't. That's just not my area. But I can't find nobody that can help you, <laughs> you know? Um mm-hmm. So that's the first thing, get into therapy. Therapy doesn't have to always mean something is wrong. Therapy can help you. So when the things that do become wrong happen, right, you have um, you have the resources and the skills and the tools to know how to work through them. Or if you don't know how to work through it, you still have something, right? So you don't have to go mm-hmm. just because now you fall my part and lay it all out on the floor and cussing everybody out. Like, let's get the therapy before all of that happens. So yeah. somebody <laughs> is looking at you crazy out the side of they, you know, talking reckless, as I say, you know how to check yourself. Mm-hmm. That, right? Um, yes. So that's the first thing I'm going to say, get into therapy. Another thing I'll say, find you a provider, whether it's a medical provider or a mental health provider that really understands perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, that understands infertility. So maybe you're going to, to your doctor. Um, are they screening? Are they checking to see how you are really doing? Because that's another thing that yeah. doesn't happen. It's not a lot of screening that goes on. We screen for hmm. gestational diabetes. We screen for high blood pressure. Nobody's a lot of times really screening for how is mom really yeah. doing and what questions. And so the mental health provider may not be screening either, right? Hmm. They yes. yeah. screening. And so then they don't even know what to, they didn't even know what questions to ask you. You didn't even know what to tell them because <laughs> all you know is you're just here because what you may have said, life issue. <laughs> um, so, but so this is why it's so important to shop around, right? Absolutely. To do your research and educate yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So some of the Google terms, right? Post there, uh, you know, I tell people to Google if you just kind of really don't know, like um, therapy for a new baby and anxiety, because that's usually what they're Googling. I've all over the place just had a new baby. What does it mm. mean if um, I'm, I'm, I'm having crazy thoughts about my or weird thoughts or scary thoughts about my new baby? That's what they're Googling. Yeah. Right. They're not telling yes. anyone. They're not going to their partner, their mama, their cousin, their uncle and saying, right. you know, I was really having some thoughts about if I just drop this baby, what will happen? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I'm really over here having some some thoughts about not wanting to be here because to me being a mom is super important and I don't feel like you know they're telling me I'm never going to be a mom and so that's my life's purpose what I feel like and so if I can't do that then why am I even here yes they're not telling yeah. me they're suicidal yeah. right mm-hmm. googling things so one um looking for a provider with that specialty Mm-hmm. Postpartum Support International mm-hmm. has some great resources, and it's a whole website, Maternal Mental Health Now. Um, okay. And so you can actually go on those sites because the providers on those sites are trained. The you know they're mm-hmm. trained. Okay. So it's mm-hmm. it, it's yeah. not like maybe um, you know maybe a different type of platform. And I'm just not gonna say platform names because hey. But but it's not maybe some other type of platform where you may find um, a mental health provider, or a medical provider like, yeah, that you may find one. But if you're going onto those specific websites or, you know, different websites that mm-hmm. focus on that, you know, all of the providers on that website specialize in perinatal mental health. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, right. In facility, you can go to American Society for Reproductive Medicine and look for providers, and then you know, or you can Google, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of them may not be on ASRM, but you can Google, um, you know, therapist for infertility. And okay. Not just women's issues, because women's issues can be anything. That can be new mm-hmm. parenting, that can be a new career, getting married leaving the nest, your children leaving the nest, that can be a lot. So you want to be specific. You want to, you want, don't want to just look for women's issues because that doesn't necessarily mean that they um, deal with infertility or perinatal mental health. And so, okay. Thanks for that clarification. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so, you know, kind of looking for that, but going on those sites that you know that they specifically do. And then guess what? If you have insurance, most of the times your insurance covers mental health counseling. And so you can call your provider. Listen, you paying all this money for insurance. (laughs) Yes. Your EAP, call your insurance company and have them do the work. I am struggling Mm -hmm. with what I think I just had a new baby. Um, my my thoughts all over the place, my moves, my baby is three months, I don't know what to do. And I need help finding a therapist that specializes in what I'm dealing with, because maybe you don't know the terminology. Yeah. Hopefully by yeah. today and listening, you'll know perinatal mental health or yes. maybe you'll still say maternal mental health, like the insurance company gets it. But then they can start reaching out to providers because it can be overwhelming to be get this mm-hmm. list. You got to call this one and that one, leave mm-hmm. a message. Who did I just call? They answer machine not working. They don't, they not accepting the <laughs> clients, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. trying to work, take care of a baby. And people say sleep when the baby sleep, fold clothes when the baby fold clothes. I guess, I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> right. So they're still trying to manage, put that on your insurance company to kind of help you do um, so using those resources as well, mm-hmm. if you don't have insurance, being able, you know, to, to Google and look for maybe a facility that has an intern or low cost therapy and things like, yes. that. um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or an associate providers or someone like that. So folks know, like they may not be able to get on my caseload, but I have folks that I'm training or that I train or mm-hmm. that I have at my practice that know these two areas and, and can specialize in it too. And so maybe right. you can't pay my fee, but you could pay mm-hmm. this person's fee. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, so many good resources. Are out there. Good. Yeah. Yeah. And Latoya, I think we're going to definitely list some of these in our show notes for those who are trying to scribble it down right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we will for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, So much good information today. Thank you so much, Dr. Christie. You're welcome. Thank you for asking the questions. (laughs) Oh, yes. You know, no. Yes. Yes. This is how we get the information out. What would you say out of everything that you've shared today? What would be your one takeaway for our listeners? Oh my goodness. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> y'all, I could talk about this like all day. I love it. Day and get very passionate. You know how we are about those things that we are passionate about, right? Oh yes. yeah. But the one thing that I, the one takeaway that I would want the listeners to have is do not unnecessarily suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. 
There yes. are providers, there is help and there are providers, you know, ready to help you. It's okay mm-hmm. again to shop around. So if the first therapist you went to or the first doctor you went to, you just didn't vibe with and connect with, guess what? Don't let that mar and, and deter your process. Like find you one. It's like dating. Right. Clearly, yes. You better not be dating your therapist and your doctor. Right? <laughs> it's like right. You try one. And if the person wasn't right for you, you don't just like write it off forever. You may say, yeah. it's not my type. Here's the red flag, you know, or mm-hmm. I just I need someone taller or more money or don't live on mm-hmm. a mom's house, whatever it may be. <laughs> yes. like, you don't just stop. You, you, you mm-hmm. may kind of get out the game a little, right? You may be like, oh, mm-hmm. wait, this dating world, this is crazy mm-hmm. out here now, but you don't stop. You figure it out. So you may go to online dating. You may have a friend mm-hmm. hook you up. You may go to church. Like you may find different ways to find a partner or the person for you. And so it's the same yeah. thing with finding your provider. Don't, don't mm-hmm. stop dating us because maybe you know you went to (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know something that you needed them to say keep looking ask people to help Mm -hmm. you ask folks to you know if you know someone say hey I'm really trying to find me a therapist that does this that and the third y'all know anybody you know any resources yeah so don't suffer in silence because literally there is no need to there is no need Mm -hmm. to Find you a provider that is going to work for you and work with you um, and that you feel comfortable and safe with. Because when you do that, you're you're more likely to actually talk and talk about those things that do seem embarrassing, that you do feel guilty about or ashamed about those thoughts and Mm -hmm. things like that. You're more likely to open up your build that relationship with your therapist and feel not only physically safe, but emotionally safe, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Take away. Don't suffer in silence. Get help get help. It's only going to make you better, your life better, your partner better, your baby's mm-hmm. better, those that your job better. Like it's going to yes. just improve your overall functioning. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The overall quality of life. Absolutely. Ah, excellent point. Yeah. And that's definitely our message here. You guys don't suffer in silence. Mm-hmm. So Thanks again for listening. Thanks again, Dr. Christie, for joining us. Folks, you guys can connect with us at soultalkforblackfolks.com or you can join us in our Facebook community, which we would love to have you do. And that is at Soul Talk for Black Folks. If you feel like your soul has got fed today in, in this episode, we would love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. It's very much appreciated. So until next time, this has been your soul sisters, LaToya and Sarah. Bye. Bye.